BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, in for John Canzano, here's Judah Newby with the bald-faced truth. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome in. It's the bald-faced truth on a Thursday, December 15th, T-minus 10 days till Christmas Day. Merry Christmas, happy holidays. Still getting in the Christmas spirit myself. Yesterday helped, but uh, still settling in. Uh, love your holiday music submissions. Appreciate that. They were all over the map. And uh, continuing to take those if you so choose. We'll talk UCLA's move to the Big Ten, that being final. But, man, I'm starting to get really excited. I'm starting to get really pumped for tonight. In a little over two hours, the Seattle Seahawks and San Francisco 49ers will meet on the uh, the gridiron at Seahawks Stadium, Quest Field, CenturyLink Field, Lumen Field, T-Mobile Park. S- same uh, same park block. Key Arena. Key Arena, exactly. Climate Pledge. All those venues will get together tonight. It's a big one, man. This is one of the biggest games of the year. One of the biggest games of the NFL season for any team, but of course for the uh, for the Seattle Seahawks. It does feel like their playoff hopes rest on the uh, the next four games, of course. But tonight's game in particular as the first domino that kicks off the uh, the final stretch of four games. If you want to sound off on that, you can at 503-417-7575. Although I am looking around, Stephen, and uh, some some somehow between yesterday and today, uh, the phone bank next to me disappeared. I don't know where my phones are. They they lit, there's no phone bank next to me. Well, who came in here and stole the phones? Feel free to call. I will answer the phones. Who? I, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. yeah. Who just steals the phones? Who just jumps in and jacks the phones? Golly, how many emails do I have to send to get things right around here? This is unbelievable. Someone just needed a landline really bad, I guess. I guess. Oh, this is ridiculous. Oh, man. So you can still call because Steven has got my back and he's got a phone bank next to him. But wherever the hell mine went, I've got no idea. So I'm going to have to track that down again. Thanks for nothing. Um, But you can call at 503-417-7575. And just go ahead and bombard Steven with your Thursday night football takes. Uh, Mike Parker, voice of the Oregon State Beavers, will stop by later this hour. He is slated for a 3.30 appearance on the show today from Vegas as the Beavs get ready to take on Florida. Curtis Rogers, good friend, former uh, staff member here on the BFT as well from a few years back. Now with Seattle Sports Station 710 in Seattle. He will join us as well to uh, preview Seahawks and Niners coming up tonight. Um, so that conversation will be at uh, 4 o'clock today as well. So good to be with you. 503-417-7575. UCLA's Pac-12 move is final. Uh, what does this mean for the conference? And what does it mean for Oregon and Washington? Now that we've got some clarity, we've got some finality the next question is, how soon does a media rights deal get made for the Pac-12 conference? And what are the, the results going to be from that? What is the revenue per school? How will those revenue numbers compare to the Big Ten deal, compare to the Big 12 deal that got made a month ago as well? The Pac-12 is the only remaining Power 5 conference with available media rights for the next eight years. 
the Big Ten just did their media rights deal with Fox, CBS, and NBC. That's going to run through 2030. The Big 12 did their media deal with ESPN and Fox. That's going to run through 2031. The SEC's deal that they did exclusive with ESPN runs all the way to 2034. And we know the uh, <laughs> the big old deal the ACC did years ago that somehow runs through 2036 um, that they're kind of locked into that's impeded them from doing any kind of creative partnerships they might otherwise have fancied. Their ACC media rights deal still goes through 2036, which is longer than the rest of these new deals that just got done. And so that just leaves the Pac-12 as the only remaining Power 5 conference with media rights uh, available until the Big Ten is available again in 2030. And who knows, frankly, what conferences are going to look like at that point. So as far as what the Pac-12's media rights step is, I mean... I think something with Fox is probably likely. Uh, maybe something with ESPN as well, seeing as ESPN got kind of freezed out of the uh, the Big Ten deal. But a digital partner is probably in play as well with Amazon or Apple. I don't think they'll have a majority role, as it were, probably just a minority role. But then again, would Amazon or Apple be interested in Pac-12 games if it was only a minority role and they wouldn't uh, be able to air the premier games each week like the like Amazon at least gets one big exclusive national game it's not always the best game in the NFL uh tonight is probably the exception but it's not always the best game in the NFL but it, at least it's a standalone national game that's not competing in any other win- windows with any uh linear TV but would Amazon be interested in broadcasting Pac-12 games when they weren't necessarily guaranteed to be the best Pac-12 game or Pac-10 game, or whatever the heck the conference looks like at that point. Uh, What happens to the Pac-12 network? I mean, these are all the same questions we've been asking for months. But now we got to bring them back to the surface because UCLA is officially out the door. So whatever plan A's, plan B's, George Klyovkov and his consultants had and his staff had with uh, trying to negotiate the next media rights deal, it's time to bring them out now. Because UCLA is out the door and it's final. How do you feel about that if you're a Duck fan? Do you think Oregon needs to start exploring alternatives? I mean, it wouldn't be start exploring alternatives. I'm sure they've been exploring alternatives for a long time now. But I am curious if you are a Duck fan, do you want Rob Mullins, do you want Phil Knight to get a little bit more aggressive here because there is one thing that George Klyovkov has done when he's consistently said in recent weeks that there is no urgency to get a media rights deal done. In a way, I understand that you're the only power five conference at large. You just got Dion in your conference. Let it marinate a little bit. That could only raise your value. That being said, when you leave a little bit of time left and you say there is no urgency, you're giving a little bit more time to Oregon, to Washington, to maybe back-channel a little bit. And dare I say, I'd be surprised if Oregon and Washington weren't at least exploring a little bit of back-channeling. Not a lot, but a little bit, just to see what's out there. And I'm sure they've been doing it for months. And the third part of that conversation is, does the Big Ten want Oregon? Does the Big Ten want Washington? What would be the cost of doing business for something like that? And the answer right now is probably no. 
It's probably no. So when you get down to it, I don't, I do not see a likely scenario in which Oregon leaves, in which Washington leaves. I don't see that. I don't think it's practical. I don't think it really makes a lot of sense outside of, um, outside of, I think, marginal revenue gains. I mean, I haven't seen the exact numbers, but I think it would be marginal revenue gains for the other Big Ten schools if Oregon and Washington left. I mean, Oregon and Washington would benefit from the Big Ten a lot more than the Big Ten would benefit from Oregon and Washington. But at the same time, I don't see that happening. I don't think it's likely. And uh, and frankly, as a Pac-12 fan, I wouldn't be a fan of that. I wouldn't be a fan of Oregon and Washington trying to leave for uh, allegedly greener pastures that, I mean, it depends on how you see color. But I don't think they're that much greener in the Big Ten that we're being led to believe. 503-417-7575. Stephen Vaughn behind the glass as well. Stephen, now that we've had about 24 hours, a little less to uh, to have the UCLA exodus to the Big Ten be official, to let it kind of you know settle and uh, and let the dust settle from that. How are you feeling about it, and what's next for the Pac-12 in your mind? It's tough because you know, dude. I want to throw this back at you. If you're the Ducks or you're Washington, you know, I think those are the two top teams that if they are going to leave, they would be you know at least listening. What has the Pac-12 done lately, especially? that would give you confidence in this conference that they're going to make the right decisions. Because in my mind, I mean, Klyovkov has said things and there's been no action. And a lot of times he hasn't even been saying anything. The only time he does say things is when he is basically forced to make a statement about it. There's never any news about the Pac-12. Like, I know that, like, John doesn't believe Brett Yormark and the Big 12 and how they want to be out and making making deals and getting new teams. But at least they are, like, showing confidence and they're saying things out there Klyovkov hasn't really been leading the Pac-12 in that direction. So, like, if I'm Oregon or I'm Washington, of course I'm going to be listening to other conferences and seeing other deals because I just I want to have a backup plan. Like, I think in, in the best-case scenario, yeah, you want to stay in the Pac-12 and you want to increase the number of teams there with San Diego State, somebody else. But you gotta, you know, you got to play both sides and you got to have a backup plan just in case it doesn't happen. I mean, do you have confidence in what the Pac-12 has done in the past or even in the present with Klyovkov in charge? No, I mean, I've, I'm more bullish on Klyovkov than you are. I think you're probably a more natural skeptic than I am. I've kind of bought in a little bit to, to the uh, to the energy that he's brought and to the the pattern of thinking that he's delivered. That being said, who cares? The results are what matter, right? And that's I think the point that you're making that Klyovkov needs to prove uh, his medal by this media rights deal, you know, and by the the teams that end up being added, if they're added at all to this conference. Like, we need results on which to evaluate, you know, George as a commissioner. Right now, I mean, what what results do we have? He took uh, divisions away, which was, you know, it looked like a smart kind of forward-thinking move. It happened right before the season. Um, You know, outside of that, the decisions that he's made and the impact that he's made has been marginal compared to the decisions and and results he's about to make and uh but th- living in that unknown is a little like uncomfortable like i probably am leaning more on the side of having faith that the pac12 is going to get something favorable but to your point you got to believe it to see it right yeah like i want to hope right i'm hoping that a, a great things happen out of this but i need to see it like i haven't ever seen it you know, whether it was Larry Scott back in the day, now at Klyovkov, I haven't seen the moves that I feel like are good for the Pac-12 in general. So 
for me, I got to see it first. I'm hoping, I'm hoping because I love the Pac-12. I'm a Pac-12 guy. I love to you know stay up late and watch these games and be really you know a part of the conference. But I, it's hard for me to say, yeah, I have a hundred percent trust in this process when I have nothing to back it up. And then, is it likely that it's a San Diego State? Is it likely that it's a San Diego State plus one? I, I still think there's too much out there for San Diego State not to join the Pac-12. I think between the Dan Patrick report, and not saying that Dan is is a hundred percent, but between the Dan Patrick report and uh, other you know kind of subtle reporting and not so subtle reporting that's been done out there, I, there's too much smoke out there for me not to believe that there's fire with the Aztecs joining this conference. And, you know, it's time to heat those up again. Now that UCLA's gone, they're gone, gone, you know, starting in 2024. But the decision is made. Like, the clarity has been reached. They are leaving. They're going to probably pay a little bit of calimony or the Berkeley tax, which uh, will be impacted by the media rights deal that eventually gets done in the Pac-12. That will indicate how much between, I think, 2 and $10 million dollars UCLA will have to pay Cal Berkeley, which is kind of funny. Um, but they're going to have to pay that. But aside from that, like, you know, yesterday's decision did bring finality. It did bring clarity. There, It was always likely UCLA was going to leave. It just took a little bit longer than, uh, than the private school in USC took, of course. So now that they're gone, I mean, now it's on to the next steps. And we got to figure out as a conference if that means, you know, adding – San Diego State and SMU, if that means adding San Diego State and UNLV, adding San Diego State and, you know, insert program here, not BYU. They're already going to the Big 12, but uh, does Boise kind of circle back into that? But whatever two programs you end up with, it's not going to come close to the caliber of brand that's leaving. And you got to be okay with that. Yeah. That's just the reality of what we're dealing with. But I wonder what domino is first. I mean, it's, is it the adding of schools or is it the media rights deal? If you're George, it's got to be the adding of schools needs to be first, right? Because that, in theory, would raise your conference valuations to prospective bidders while also clearly affecting you know the per capita revenue spread around the conference. Yeah, it's just solidify what schools are going to be in the Pac-12, and so you know people know what they're uh, what they're bidding on. Yeah, yeah, dude, it's like. I just I'm tired of having you know Klyovkov's can kick the can down the road for a long time and he's been stalling and he's been saying you know what we've been we've been patient we no reason to rush blah 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 but now is the time to make some moves yeah I mean the but time he is, said it's not going to happen until after the new year like then, nothing will be official on the media rights front and then Bob Thompson comes on here and says that is insane that he says that they're not doing deals at this point in time like this is when they're making deals so like i just i i don't know what to believe i don't know who to believe i yeah. just i want to see something i want to see something positive um again i have a little bit of faith i have a little bit of hope i just uh, i i need to see it man i i don't i don't know what to uh, trust I, I do tell you i think prime coming helps i think prime- for how much though like um, good question. How much? Like, does it is it a dollar amount? Is it just buzz in the Pac-12? Yeah, yeah it's like, definitely buzz. Yeah, like uh, I saw something where what's the monetary you know value is there of monetary? That buzz? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. All right, Colorado. You know what? What was their schedule this year? Obviously, they had the duckies on it. They had home games with. They played uh, TCU this year. Start of the year, first game of the year. And obviously, you know TCU ends up being a, a playoff team with a Heisman finalist that we didn't know at the time. But I'm just kind of spitballing and thinking out loud of some Colorado games that we might see next year. 
I went to bowl schedule. Well, That's ne- not going to feature so next year they color. play. Their first game is at TCU. <laughs> Oh, it's going to finish the home-and-home yeah. home with TCU? At TCU, game And that's a one. true road game then, right, yeah. for them? Yep. So that's big. I mean, that would, uh, for me, land on ESPN or Fox in a, in a very visible window, right? You have to, yeah. college football playoff, uh, college football playoff semifinalist against Dion in his first game. Like, that's big-time stuff. Um, all of a sudden, Dion against Kyle Whittingham is an interesting game. And normally that's always at the end of the year, right? During uh, the quote-unquote rivalry weekend with Apple Cup and Civil War, etc. Um, I'll be interested to see how the Pac-12 decision makers, you know, lay out the schedule with Dion involved, right? Because, like, they're the ones in charge of the schedule. And next year, by the way, will be the first year that the schedule is not impacted by South and North divisions. That's the South and North division divorce, as it were, for Pac-12 title game participants came way after the schedule was set. So this year we still had South against South, North against North, a handful of inner, you know, inner division games. But now this will be the first full year where divisions do not apply. So I wonder if does that mean, you know, Dion against UW, Dion against Oregon, you know, Dion against uh, Oregon State? Do you try to play as much of those? Big time matchups. Do you try to schedule as much of those as possible with uh, with your media partners this year, knowing that the next media rights deal is not 2023? Obviously, it doesn't start next year. It will start in uh, in 2024. Like, I don't know that. To me, that's what I would do. I try to put Dion on national TV as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, regardless of how good his team is, and it probably will be. He'll probably be okay. I don't think it will be Lincoln Riley jetpack, but it'll be it'll be a little Diet Coke Lincoln Riley. You know, I like to uh, I like to gander at some of the lines of different shady sports books. I did find an online uh, <laughs> overseas offshore book that did have an early line for over under wins on Colorado. Let me guess. And it, I mean, this is before any they've gotten into their guys. The transfers in like they had a lineup. So yeah, go for it. Guess seven, five and a half. Really? Okay. Basically, will they make a bowl game or not? All right. And it was juiced slightly to the over. That seems right. about right, though. That seems about right. Yeah. What, what's your take on that if you're listening? 503 417 You can also tweet at 750thegame at Judah Newby. The impact of Dion on the Pac-12's perception across the country and uh, their next media rights deal. And are you still into it? Or after this UCLA news, you're like, man, just wake me up when September ends. You know, wake me up when we got some resolution. Because I'm kind of there, frankly. Like, we've talked about the minutia enough. And I'm starting to get uh, just, you know, frustrated with George that we don't have resolution. Because I, selfishly, I'm tired of talking about it. Like, show me the money. George, show me the money. and uh, But also, have it be a favorable money okay let's let, let's not have this fall flat we've come too far to have our next media rights negotiation fall flat uh we'll be back in a moment we'll talk a little beef skaters mike parker will stop by from vegas in about 10 minutes as well curtis rogers from seattle sports station will join us as well in the four o'clock hour ahead of seahawks niners tonight on thursday night football newbie for Kazano on the bft Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Mike Park 
Kerr will join us in a few moments as well, so this will be a bit of a shorter segment. Taking your calls at 503-417-7575 now that UCLA officially is Big Ten bound. What do you think is next for the Ducks? What do you think is next for the Huskies? Those are the two programs most often linked about uh, potentially side-eyeing the Big Ten. Just uh, just a little bit, just a little bit. Not a foot out the door, but maybe a toenail, depending on how big the toenail is. Uh, Rick is in Eugene. He's got an opinion on the phone lines right now. Rick, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Good. Good. Uh, so when this whole thing first started, I thought Oregon was going to be out the door next to go. Same with Washington to a certain extent, even though I don't really like Washington. I know they are uh, uh, a national brand. Um, I don't think either one of those teams would make sense to go anywhere unless the media deal was really, really bad. Because now, like, take Oregon. They've won the Pac-12 um, more times than any other team. I'm pretty sure in the last 20 years they've won the conference. Uh, now, uh, going to the 12-team playoffs, I believe the um, if you win your conference, you automatically get in, right? Yeah. So I don't think Oregon's got a – same with Washington. they got a really easy shot to the playoffs every year um, with as consistent as they're a 10-win team and as consistently as they both win um, or have won the, the Pac-12. So unless the media deal's really bad, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. I don't see them going anywhere. I think that um, – USC and UCLA are going to see that this isn't all it was cracked up to be because, you know, flying back and forth across the country for football games when you're a college student doesn't really doesn't really seem real uh, convenient. Or, yeah, I, I, and I, I appreciate the call, Rick. Thanks. And uh, there's nothing in there that I really disagree with all that much. I think we probably make a little too much of the travel deal, uh, especially for football. Because of its, you know, seasonal nature and its weekly nature and, frankly, the accommodations that are going to be made for the football programs, I'm not really all that worried about. You know, uh, universities care too much about their football programs. It's the other programs. It's the Olympic sports. It's the non-revenue generating sports I'm worried about in terms of accommodations uh, for travel and things like that. But I do agree that because of the playoff expansion, you know, access to the playoff was a huge domino in this debate of whether or not Oregon and Washington uh, would be more suited, have more access to the playoff in the Big Ten than they would the Pac-12. The expansion now, you would figure, favors Oregon and Washington to stay where they are, right? I mean, you win this conference, there's two less quote-unquote contenders to worry about in SC and UCLA. Uh, The additions that may or may not come in San Diego State, SMU, UNLV, insert program here. I don't think they would be considered uh, contenders, at least not right away, to win this conference. You got Dion in here, which is fun, but look, he's going to need a little bit of time. You got Jonathan, who's built something sustainable. That's going to be a program you're going to have to deal with, and then you're going to have to deal with one another, UW and, and Oregon. So, frankly, I agree with uh, with the caller that you know playoff access in the Pac-12 doesn't look so bad. Even with SC and UCLA out, it doesn't look so bad because of the guarantee that if you win that Friday night Pac-12 game in Vegas, you're going. And then what I find interesting, though, is how do the out-larges look? If you don't win that Friday night game in Vegas, how many other teams from the Pac-12, the Pac-10, the Pac-11, whatever ends up being, how many other teams are going to be at-large candidates compared to the Big Ten? 
compared to the SEC. I'll be interested in that because now you're talking about a, you know, perception battle. But but the thing is also is, isn't it just really about money? Like what's if they go to the Big Ten, they're going to get a more guaranteed money than the deal they would get with the Pac-12. Yeah, even I mean the only way you end up, <laughs> and again, I, maybe I need to look at the numbers closely, but you got to you got to make the playoff every year for a decade to maybe make up the gap of of you know annual revenue that you might not have being in the Pac-12 compared to the Big Ten Conference. And so it's kind of like, what do those athletic depart- departments want? Is it yeah. is it really just about the bottom line dollar, or is it about, you know, like the caller said, like the success and how you're saying yeah. success being in the college football playoff? It's, it's tough. It's uh, the, Both of those factors are at play without a doubt. All right, we'll go to break, and when we come back, the voice of the Beavers, Mike Parker from Vegas, ahead of Saturday's call from Allegiant Stadium, Oregon State, Florida, eager to talk to Mike. He's a, he's a great man and uh, eager to listen to his call Saturday morning. Mike Parker is next on the BFT. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. And now a short line drive punt to Anthony Gould. Makes the catch at the 20. Comes up a seam to the 30. At the 35 to the 40. Gould looking for a block. And Anthony Gould is on his way down the left sideline. 10-5 and in. Anthony Gould. Touchdown Beavers on the punt return. And the Beavers lead it 40-14. to of memorable calls from Mike Parker this year on the Beavers Sports Network from Learfield. He is the voice of the Beavers. The Beavers have a chance at 10 wins. They take on Florida Saturday in Vegas and uh, looking forward to hearing Mike's call. Mike, great to talk to you once again. Thanks for joining us and how are you? Judah, I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on the show. I have just found a place that has been elusive for me during my several days at uh, the beautiful The Virgin Hotels here uh, just off the strip in Vegas, namely the media room to pick up credentials, which will be important for my entry into (laughs) Allegiant Stadium here in a couple of days. But I found it. I'm glad to be here and glad to be on with you and was really glad to hear that call. That goes way back, and little did we know then, even though Anthony Gould's return there and that memorable event at Providence Park got the Beavers off to the type of start they needed to be at 3-0. and And I, little did we know that, that that was just part of what would be for Anthony Gould, first-team All-America status. Wow. Good for Anthony. You know, Anthony Gould is a first-team All-America as a punt returner and just one of many great storylines during the course of the year in that 3-0 and now 9-3 and three with a chance for the Beavers to get a 10th win. It's been delightful to be down here. The Las Vegas Bowl people are doing an amazing job with the event. Uh, the SRS Distribution Las Vegas Bowl at Allegiant Stadium. We've been down here two other times in 2003 and in 2009. And just at, from an organization level, the events, uh, the spirit, the feel uh, that the Bowl people have put on for, for the guys for both teams has been tremendous. And now we're just looking forward to it culminating in the early kickoff Saturday for the Beavs, hoping to get to 10-3. and three. You know, as you say that, Mike, it's a little surreal for me because I had you on my weekend radio show uh, leading up to the game at Providence Park and uh, in the game with Montana State. And we were talking mm-hmm. about what would the significance be of that Fresno State victory. 
And part of your answer, I remember, was, well, we'll see. First of all, (laughs) if the Beavers end up winning nine or ten games, we'll be looking back on that Fresno State win and being like, yeah, that was pretty massive for the program. Lo and behold, here we are. Yeah, Yeah, and all of the games, you know, become incrementally more significant and important depending on what happens afterwards and on the other side of it if you look back if you could have made one more play on the other side of it against usc where that might have left the beavers an opportunity to maybe play in the pac-12 title game and unfortunately caleb williams whom they contained better than any other defense did uh, all year 16 of 36 180 yards for the heisman trophy winner Trent Bray's defense and those guys that played on defense that night will always have that to look back on, that they held the Heisman Trophy winner to those kinds of numbers and to 17 points. Unfortunately, the offense was a little out of sync that night and turned it over too many times against a vulnerable defense that the Beavs, looking back, probably should have taken more advantage of. But you flip that to the game you're referring to against Fresno State and a near-miraculous come-from-behind victory in that, the win at Stanford down 24-10 to 10 early in the fourth quarter. So I think at 9-3, and three, that's a lot to be proud of and not too many what-ifs or oh, if only this, if only that. I think at 9-3, and three, this program has a lot to be proud of, excited about. And the sense I've gotten from everybody talking to guys around the hotel, the coaches, 10 wins, 10 wins. I, there, there's not going to be any sense of, just being glad to be here and in any way overlooking a 6-6 six and six team they are from the SEC. But no matter who the Beavers were playing, Judah, I think the quest to be one of only three teams in history to get to 10 is pretty important to these guys. Mike Parker joining us on the BFT. All that said, Mike, uh, the ninth win was pretty amazing as well. Uh, have you come down yet from the win over Oregon? Well, not really, because I hear the calls every once in a while from the game, and, you know, the whole uh, musical uh, rhetorical question, I suppose, from Elton John that immediately came to mind from Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. He sings eloquently, when are you going to come down? When are you going to land? Those are two great musical questions. And I remember thinking of those questions at the time the Beavers had completed the rally to win the game, and I said, well... When are you going to come down? I don't know if I ever will. When are you going to land? I still haven't. I'm glad the Beavers have landed in Vegas with a chance to get to 10. But that was an unbelievable uh, spectacle to see the Beavers come all the way back in that and running the football in doing it. Whoever would have thought in the day and age in which we live that the Beavers could, could mount that kind of rally without completing a pass or even attempting one. It was an incredible testament to the running game, to the running backs, the depth in the running back room, to Jim Mahalchuk's work on the offensive line. For those guys, even when Oregon knew what was coming, to just impose their will and keep running it, keep running it. And even though they had some short fields to work with, Oregon still knew what was coming and couldn't stop it. It was one of the highlights in the 24 years I've had with the Beavs that uh, I'll never forget. When are you going to come down? When are you going to land? That's that's a great <laughs> line. And, you know, it's it's hard to, to go there from here, but there is a lot up in the air. There is a lot unresolved with the Pac-12 conference as a whole now, Mike, uh, coming out of yesterday's decision of UCLA and the, the UC Board of Regents to approve, with stipulations, the UCLA departure to the Big Ten Conference. 
Um, what what are your thoughts on that? And now that we have that finality and clarity, that uh, the pack whatever conference is going to be Sons Trojans, Sons Bruins, starting in twenty four. I always felt that that was a mere formality, Judah. I didn't think there was any any scenario whereby UCLA and or USC would stay. They're not. I knew we knew that was pretty much a fait play at the time that it that it was announced in late June, and so. The, the stamp of officialdom or whatever yesterday was didn't really, to me, change anything. It is interesting to see, to me now, that we're back to being a Pac-10 conference officially now, and whether it will remain a Pac-10, whether it will be splintered further, I certainly hope not, and I don't believe that it will, given the access to the playoff now with the CFP expanding to 12 teams to the media rights contract that Wilner and your own, you know, John Canzano and John Wilner have done such a great job keeping us abreast and apprised of all of the developments along those lines. Wilner comes in uh, in his latest piece with because the Pac-12 is last, the number could actually be, you know, there was some thought they might lose leverage being last. But the fact that everybody else is tied up is Wilner's major point for quite a few years that if some of the new entities who want to get involved in media rights and in the streaming of games and so on, this is the only space they're going to have to do it for quite a few years. I think that actually gives the Pac-12 a bit of a leverage advantage to get a pretty good number that I think will make the the rest of the 10 feel pretty good about where they are. And there might even be things going on uh, with respect to possibly expanding into the San Diego market and somewhere else that could still keep uh, the conference viable as a 12-team entity. So I've, I've been nervous. You know, I've been uh, unsettled, as I think we all have for months, with respect to, you know, what's going to happen to, you know, I mean, will Oregon and Washington be next? What, you know, will the four corners depart? What's going to happen to Washington State, Oregon State, and the rest of the league. I feel better about it now than I did back in late June. I think we're in a pretty good place. Mike Parker joining us on the BFT. Oregon State, Florida in the Vegas Bowl coming up Saturday, 1130 from Allegiant Stadium. Mike, if you could, compare the attitude, compare the feeling around the program going into the bowl game this year to where it was at last year, uh, seven-win season a year ago. Touchdown favorites, although I know you know nobody pays attention to the betting lines uh, technically, but they were touchdown favorites with Utah State uh, playing in an NFL stadium, and it didn't quite you know bring out the performance Beaver fans were hoping for. Do, do you get a different vibe and a different feeling around the program now that they're on nine wins, going for double digits against a, uh, I, an opponent yeah. from the SEC? Judah, I think that that's the the biggest thing. I mean, you you touched on the two biggest aspects. The 10-win opportunity has gotten everybody's full attention. And the opponent, now I realize a few a few folks have looked askance at Florida's record is 6-6. Six and six. You know, you go 9-3 and three and you have the kind of year you had, you get a 6-6 six and six opponent. Forget that. Forget that. You're getting a blue-blood SEC opponent that is a little bit down right now. I and mean, they've got, they're in a bit of flux with all of the, the players into the portal and several declaring for the NFL draft. But they're a proud SEC program. This is their 48th bowl game. They've won three national championships. They, the guys that are here are ultra-talented. They have a 415, let me say it again, a 415-pound 
nose tackle. I thought it was a uh, a typo. <laughs> I, I doubled and triple checked it and finally talked to a couple of players who went to the Fremont experience last night in, in Old Town, Vegas. And they said, yeah, we saw number 21. He occupied half the street, it appeared. <laughs> and he makes plays. So, so the offensive line is, I think, going to be up to and ready to be challenged by a defense that did some good things down the stretch, stopping the run. Now, not consistently. They, they've had an up-and-down kind of year. They beat Utah in the season opener. They're playing a guy. It's so I've never done this before in my life. Two things. I've never written down, you know, 6'5", 415. I've written down 6'5", 360. I mean, I've had some guys in the upper threes. I've never in, in all my life in preparing for a game when putting together my depth charts and so on, 6'5", 415, 415. Yeah. Again, I just, I couldn't believe it, but he is a full 415 pounds. And I've also never this late in the year, when I got to the quarterback position, go to the stats page. Let's see how many passes are so well, they Jack Morris, the third hasn't taken a snap this year. I've never done that either. I mean, here we are into a 13th game uh, for Florida and they do not have a quarterback playing in this game. That's taken a snap. The problem with, with thinking that, oh, therefore, oh, the Beavers can call their number, they'll win this thing handily. Jack Morris III is a four-star recruit. He was identified early by Ryan Day at Ohio State as a guy they wanted and brought in. They thought he was going to be one of the next to be a big-time star for them. He got a little impatient playing behind some great talent there and transferred out. But... He is a four-star, legit, big-arm, strong-arm recruit who's had all of this time to get all the reps with the number one offense, and I expect him to be able to do some things. You know, you don't have that kind of cachet, that kind of talent, unless you're good, and you've got two running backs, too, and they've got one of the better freshman running backs in the country. And I say one of the better because we know where the best resides. <laughs> he resides on the Beavers roster. Damian Martinez, 30 yards shy of 1,000. He's been practicing. I expect him to be able to play and get to that number. But they've got uh, uh, the freshman, a freshman running back in uh, Trevez Etienne who is leading the country among true freshmen in terms of yards per carry, even a little bit better than that of Damian. And another running back in kind of a two-pronged attack that uh, Montrell Johnson Jr., who averages nearly six yards per carry. So they run the ball well. Who knows how they're going to throw it, but they've got a four-star quarterback throwing it. So all of that said, an SEC opponent trying to get to 10 wins, the bitterness of losing, I think, last year when maybe they weren't as as locked in and prepared as they needed to be. I don't worry about any of that come Saturday here. You know, Mike, I've, I, I'm i trying to dismiss the headlines I see that Oregon State's got to play a little defense when it comes to Damian Martinez. It's in this world of NIL, like anybody could come after Damian and he could leave at any time. And I'm like, I don't, I don't really buy into that. Uh, am I being naive or or do you think Beaver culture and, and the NIL infrastructure from what you know, and obviously it's still a, a maturing world out there, but then also what you know of Damian Martinez, like, uh, is, is there viability to these narratives out there that the Beavers got to play some defense on some outside schools wanting to poach their talent like Damian? I do think there's something to it. Uh, I would be, it would be utterly, I think, utterly naive to believe that, that everything you just touched on, Damian's character himself, his, his 
the coaching staff and the culture that Jonathan's created, the tremendous year that he had, and he can have visions, I think, of four or however many 1,000-yard seasons as long as he suits up with the Beavers behind Jim Mahalchik's offensive line. I know he, he loves it here, and I know that, you know, even now, unless something's happened today that I haven't seen, everybody that I've talked to down here, I've talked to coaches from the UNLV staff who've come to practice and the thing they marvel most about, that staff, by the way, Marcus Arroyo and his staff, blown out, a new coach is in. So I've talked to several of those coaches from UNLV who have come to observe the Beavers' practices, a couple of them former Oregon State assistants, in fact. But they have said the most amazing thing to them is, as of a couple of days ago anyway, yesterday, only one Oregon State player has entered the portal. And that may have changed, and if you, you know more than I do, but that would be Chance Nolan who looked at the – the quarterback situation, whereas so many other schools, including the, the opponent, Florida, have had multitude, a multitudinous players going into the portal. So that does speak to the continuity, the stability, the buy-in, the culture, all of those things that Jonathan has fostered. That all said, <laughs> the reality of poaching, the reality of tampering, the reality of back-channel communications, I have little doubt that all of that stuff is going on, has been going on. And so, yes, I think to say, do the Beavers need to be prepared? And, I, right, well, hey, we've got the best culture here. No one would ever want to leave us. Well, I mean, they're not, believe me. I, I know enough from the people involved that they're aware of, of, possible, uh, of possible scenarios that could look fairly attractive even to the best of young men with all the great intentions. And so I, I expect that they're fully prepared to, to deal with it as, as they need to. And I think I do think in the end it's going to work out okay. But to say that it isn't happening or it could never happen uh, would be naive, as you're suggesting. And, I, and I, so I think the Beavers are prepared to deal with it uh, as they need to when the situation, if it does arise, they'll be ready to deal with it properly. Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers, joining us a moment more on the BFT, newbie and for Kanzano. Mike Leach passed away Monday night. Mike, uh, I know you know you've got your radio show. You've had a, a, a chance to process it, I'm sure. But what are your memories of Coach, and uh, how have you gone about kind of processing and and uh, talking about his legacy as he was a one of one in this conference and, and in college football? You know, it, it, it's interesting, Judah. You know, there was talk, as you may recall, that Mississippi State could have indeed been the Beavers' opponent in this bowl game. In fact, I was thinking it was going to be Mississippi State and Oregon State. As we were thinking about the Las Vegas Bowl, I saw quite a few projections that were indicating that would be the matchup. And I remember two things. One, I didn't really like it because... The Beavers had lost to Mike Leach head-to-head -head six straight times. <laughs> you know, Mike Riley got him in 2012 and 2013, Mike's first two years, Leach's first two years in Pullman, and then Mike won the next eight. And it didn't matter who was quarterbacking. It didn't matter who the Beavers' D coordinator was. It didn't matter. <laughs> the Cougs were just going to throw the ball all over the place and beat the Beavers. It didn't matter if you had an 11-point lead in the fourth quarter as the Beavers did in 2019 in a game that still hurts me. It still hurts me to this day to see Borgie score in the last play of the game. People, you know, should Jonathan have punted there? No, because he was going to score no matter what. Jonathan, his only chance to win the game was to get a first down on fourth and seven. And by then, Jake Luton's hand was already broken. He didn't have uh, – he. 
the pass was incomplete. That put the ball back in Mike's offense, and they just, Anthony Gordon, marched down and scored. It was one of the brutal losses of all time. That said, it's a testament to how great Mike Leach was, what a brilliant man he was. We'll never see anybody like him in sports, let alone, you know, the Pac-12 or our college football. His, his interest level, his curiosity. I had some ambivalence about him and sometimes the way he would trot off and be dismissive of reporters and even kind of feud with reporters a little bit and to me not really play the media game that I felt he was disrespectful at times towards people in the profession. I didn't like that about him, but the more I thought about it and the more I thought about him, I'm not sure that that type of interaction it's almost it's not as though it was beneath him from a from an arrogant standpoint. I don't think he viewed it that way. His mind was so active and so full that to engage in 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 entities of in entities of small talk, you know, as at a halftime exit interview, he, he just couldn't really function in that world. His mind was thinking about what yeah. he was going to say to the team when he got in there, or what would Geronimo be thinking down twelve at halftime, or whatever. I mean, I, I just I, I, I'm pained. I'm saddened by the loss of of an absolute gem, genius, innovator touched every level of football, all of the things and the tributes that have been pouring in are well-deserved. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think there's a perfect system in college football or in the game of football, but what system he had, he did perfect. And it was a thing of, of, of pain to watch it when it was beating you, but it was a thing of beauty to see what he found through all his years of putting together an offense that was really unstoppable and that little sheet of white paper he'd pull out of his pocket and call a player to <laughs> in these days of gigantic charts and analytics and all that. That yeah. man had simplified the game in a way that was uh, beautiful to watch when it was functioning. Mike, I love that. And thanks. So it's great to hear your voice. Thanks for joining us. Have a wonderful call on Saturday. Great to be on with you again, Judah, and I thank you. Gosh, I can't believe that the last time we talked was prior to the Montana State <laughs> thing. It's been a fun ride. Yes, Thanks for bringing me back on. I appreciate it, Judah. Thank you. got it. Mike Parker will bounce the break and come back on the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Mike Parker was excellent as always. Uh, close with the clock, but memorable for sure. B F F T from the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights. In for John Canzano. Here's Judah Newby with the bald faced truth. Hour two of the show. Thanks for being here. Coming up at five fifteen, our coverage live from Westwood One. For Seattle Seahawks, San Francisco 49ers here in Portland on the, the flagship of the BFT radio network here, 750 The Game, and streaming for free as well on 750thegame.com if you're so inclined. It's a good one. Finally, a good Thursday night matchup. I'm hyped for it. I'm excited for it. In a moment, we'll talk to a good friend of mine, Curtis Rogers from Seattle Sports 710 in Seattle. Mike Parker was excellent moments ago. If you missed the conversation with Mike, voice of the Beavers, you can find it wherever you get your on-demand audio on the uh, the BFT podcast and the podcast network there. It'll also be on 750thegame.com. Talked at length about a variety of things, including UCLA's departure, uh, the passing of Mike Leach, and also what's at stake here for the Beavers 
against Florida coming up Saturday. Stephen, good stuff with Mike Parker as always. Uh, what'd you make of what he had to say? And the Damian Martinez conversation's interesting. I, I know you've talked about it. John Cazano's talked about it himself. Of hey, the Beavers to better play defense. They don't want to let Damian Martinez get poached by some other school with more money. And I've always kind of been like, dude, let's chill, okay? You don't have to raise the alarms every time Oregon State's got a good player. Where do you land on that? Yeah, I mean, I think Damian Martinez is going to come back to Corvallis. I have no reason to believe he's not going to. But I do think in this day and age of college football and college athletics, you do need to play defense. Mm -hmm. And you need to stay aggressive on that side and try to— You need to play offensive defense. Offensive defense. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That'd be the name of my NIL group. Offense defense. The offensive defensive (laughs) NIL group. Offensive defensive collective. But you 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 do need to, though, because, like— there's going to be people out there. And, you know, during the offseason, Dalton Kincaid of Utah, he talked about how Alabama came after him. And there's been other reports of guys mm. already in the portal saying, yeah, I've been offered. Mac Brown said this before the ACC championship game. He said he talked to some of his players and he asked him straight up, hey, have you been offered by other schools? And he said, yeah. So, like, you, I've, so I imagine this probably happened to Damian Martinez. Like, he's been talked to. And if you're Oregon State, you got to keep that guy. He's awesome. Um, as Mike Parker said, the best freshman running back in the nation. Like you can't really argue that. So um, I thought that was very interesting because he acknowledged it. He acknowledged like you have to, you got to be a part of it. I said, hey, am I naive if I think Damien is is a lifer in Corvallis? And he's like, like, yeah, uh, you're definitely naive. Yeah, like that. (laughs) Like, oh, okay. I think that's real. So I I thought that was uh, very interesting that he would say that. And I I like the honesty. Like, it seems very honest that it coming out of Mike Parker. We had a caller call in, wanted to just make a comment to him about how he loves Mike Parker because he's a fan. Like, you can just tell when he's announcing the game he's a fan. You can tell in those interviews, like, he does love the Beavers. And he wants them to do so well. So, like, shout out to that guy who wanted to talk to him. But uh, mm-hmm. we ran out of time. But Mike Parker's the best, man. He's yeah, awesome. He's phenomenal. So uh, glad to catch up with Mike. That podcast uh, will be out there uh, shortly if you want to check it out. Ahead of 1130 Saturday morning, Beavs and Gators. And speaking of speaking honestly, speaking of excitement, speaking of buzz, we are just a little over an hour away from kickoff between the Seattle Seahawks and the San Francisco 49ers. And uh, pleased to be joined now by a good friend of mine, a, a former staffer on this show here on the BFT. Uh, he works with Seattle Sports uh, 710 up in Seattle. He's a kid from Kent on Twitter. He is uh, C-Rodge. Curtis Rogers joining us on the program ahead of Seahawks Niners tonight on Thursday Night Football. Curtis, thanks so much for joining us, man. How are you? Judah, whenever you send that bat signal up, uh, I, I'm always there to answer. <laughs> Glad to be on with you. And uh, it's, It is a big, big day here in Seattle. Uh, it's a big, big day across the NFL because it doesn't get much better than this matchup we're going to see tonight. Al and Kirk finally got a a really good one. You know, they've been waiting for it. (laughs) Uh, I I wonder how much Al's getting paid by Amazon uh, because (laughs) some of these matchups seem a little beneath him. Yeah, yeah. And he'll let you know, too, right? For sure. Public address guy is so annoying. Uh, that's that. That was his tone last week. Uh, hopefully, there won't be any more annoyances for him tonight. Does it feel like a must-win game, Curtis, for the Seahawks to make the playoffs? Yes, it, it definitely does. Uh, I was looking at their playoff odds today. I was tinkering around on five thirty-eight, looking at their playoff projections. If the Seahawks win tonight, it, it goes up to seventy-seven percent chance uh, of them making the playoffs. And if they lose, it drops all the way down to 34%. 
you can pretty much kiss any hopes of them winning the NFC West goodbye. Uh, then you would be looking at maybe a seven seed, maybe a six seed, depending on how things shake out in the NFC East between the Commanders and Giants. So, yeah, it is absolutely a must-win tonight for these Seahawks if they want to keep their playoff hopes alive. And it, it is wild to think we're talking about the Seahawks at this point in the season, you know, on the cusp of the playoffs. Uh, I remember uh, joining Kanzano earlier this year talking about how, you know, by the time this game rolled around, you know, who knows, maybe the Seahawks will be playing for draft positioning. Uh, they're not. The Broncos are playing for the Seahawks draft positioning. So uh, it's just wild to see how far this season has uh, has come and then to see where the Seahawks are right now in a place that, I mean, yeah, it, 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 Seahawks fans, I think, do feel happy to be in this spot, but I know they are craving some playoff football. Oh, man, you're, you're, uh, you're telling me. Uh, you mentioned your Kanzano appearance. It's always great to have you back on our airwaves. Uh, you were here for about a year at some point, right? A few a few years back, is that right? That you worked with? Yeah, Jim? it was it was less than a year. It was we were. I was thinking back. It was 2017, so it was about five years ago. Uh, I was ripping it up with you guys down there. I always look back very fondly on my time uh, in Rift City with with you guys over at the game. You and I interacted uh, regularly, but I don't remember getting to bond. Uh, as much over our common Seahawk fandom, um, but you are a kid from Kent on Twitter. Uh, lay it out for us for those that don't know uh, your your Seahawk fandom. I'm also I'm assuming that you are a Seahawk fan. I'm not sure that we've ever like gotten to to bond over the Seahawks, but you've got to be a Seahawk <laughs> fan, right, Curtis? And, and it, with that premise, how far does your Seahawk uh, fandom date back, and and what are your early Seahawk memories? If we're, absolutely, I'm a Seahawk fan, and I'll tell you how far back my Seahawk fandom goes. My very first jersey uh, was a Rick Meyer jersey. Yes! That should tell you how far back it goes. Uh, I was born in the fires of the 90s, uh, which was the probably the worst time to be a Seahawks fan. So <laughs> uh, this past decade of excellence from the Seahawks, uh, you know, I always tell myself, like, man, you know, seven-year-old me would have gotten a real kick out of this. Uh, so any type of sustained success from this ball club uh, is something that, you know, I think a lot of fans around here are, are like, why would you ever complain about this, uh, considering that, yeah, they're right back in the thick of things this season. And uh, when you experience Seahawks football in the 90s of the Kingdom era, uh, anything, uh, any any kind of winning record is just so much better than what it was way, way back then. Your first Seahawk jersey is my first Seahawk artifact, uh, a Rick wow. Meyer, like, framed card that had, like, some, you know, golden signature, some fake golden signature underneath it. But uh, that was the same first Seahawk quarterback for me. <laughs> and I always joke, <laughs> like, my first Seahawk heartbreak was uh, that I can, like, clearly remember watching and crying about was the uh, Vinny Testaverde sneak uh, in the Meadowlands. Was that, I want to say, 98 or something like that? Maybe maybe 99? It was a Dennis Erickson Seahawk team. Oh, man, I did not have a good day that day. But uh, that is the backdrop of whatever Seahawks success that we get. And, of course, the uh, the 2012-13-14 run, uh, pretty unbelievable. And here we are, man. This is a new era of Seahawks football. 2022 has been the start of an absolute uh, new chapter uh, post-Russell Wilson. We'll come back to that in a moment. But 
I wanted to ask you about your expectations for this team. I assume that before the season, they were similar to mine. Maybe five, maybe six wins total. They blew those you know, expectations out of the water. But now, Curtis, I find myself in danger of, dare I say, being disappointed if they, you know, God forbid, don't make the playoffs. That can't be fair to this team, but it's almost like, like they're a victim of their own success from an expectation standpoint. Do you feel uh, at all similarly? I, I do. I think as the season started, I was in lockstep with you, Judah, thinking it was about a five or six win team. But when they got off to that 6-3 and three start, I think it was very fair for expectations to change. When you look at how good they were playing in the months of October and early November, uh, this looked like a, a bona fide playoff team. It looked like a team that was going to challenge for the NFC West crown. They had a, a lead in the NFC West, and then they sort of faltered here. Um, I think it was fair for expectations of this ball club to change, seeing uh, just how good they looked during that stretch, not just beating teams, but beating teams comfortably. Uh, they beat good teams, too. They beat the New York Giants, who, yeah, they may not have been as good as that 6-1 and one start, but they're still in the thick of the playoff chase in the NFC. Uh, you know, this Seahawks team right now, we know what they look like on their best day, and unfortunately we know what they look like on their worst day, and we've been seeing that more often than not lately. You want to see them get back to that, that level of play they were at earlier this season. I think a big thing that's going to help them tonight to get back to where they were is the return of Kenneth Walker. Uh, I think that's going to be huge for this offense, considering how non-existent their run game has been in his absence, uh, considering what the threat of the run game does for the Seahawks passing offense too. It really opens things up for Geno Smith. who's had to force things over the last couple of weeks. We've seen him uh, have some issues with turnovers. So, I think, yeah, it is fair to be expecting more out of this Seahawks team as the season goes along, considering what we know of them and we know what their ceiling can be. For Geno Smith, it's been so much fun to see him uh, thrive most of this season. But to your point, there's been some speed bumps. How much in your mind is left for Geno to prove, uh, both tonight and over these last four regular season games, to ensure that he is maybe not the long-term future, but the mid-term future at quarterback for the Seahawks moving forward? I think if he gets this team into the playoffs, it is a slam dunk that he returns next season as the starting quarterback for this team. Uh, I think if they end up maybe a game out of the playoffs or if they're still alive heading into Week 18, I think it's a very likely scenario that he returns. Um, but if they do falter, and they've got three tough games in a row, if you count tonight, you've got San Francisco, Christmas Eve at Kansas City, and then at home against the New York Jets. Uh, I mean, that is not an easy stretch of games prior to that Week 18 matchup against the Rams, uh, you know, divisional opponent who gave the Seahawks fits a couple of weeks ago. Uh, these four games could really go any way, and I do wonder if Geno Smith is going to be the guy that they, you know, hits their wagon to beyond 2022, if those four games do not go the Seahawks way, uh, I think what Geno Smith is as a quarterback now will probably be better than any production you get out of a rookie quarterback in 2022 or 2023, I should say. Uh, but this is a, a really stacked quarterback class. I mean, you've got some big names available early, Bryce Young, DJ Stroud, Will Levis, uh, to name a few guys. So they're going to have their, their pick of the litter, obviously, with that Broncos pick being where it is. It's right now number two, 
could be anywhere between two and probably like five or six uh, at the end of the season. So they're going to have a, a tremendous amount of options at their disposal. And who knows, maybe they use a pick to trade down in the draft, get a quarterback, maybe their second pick in the first round. Uh, maybe they trade Geno Smith. Maybe they franchise him. They're in a very enviable spot right now in terms of the quarterback's position because you have a great in-house option in Geno Smith, but you could also really set yourself up for the future going forward. Uh, I think Pete Carroll, though, at his age and where he has where he's at in his career, might be a little more risk-averse, maybe wants to go the safe route and bring back Geno Smith next season, run it back, see what they got in him, and uh, you know, franchise him or something this offseason, don't do a super long-term commitment to him or maybe give him a two- or three-year deal after this season. Uh, that's something that I could see happen. Uh, I think that, that might be the most likely scenario, too, because Geno Smith at, at one point this season was in MVP consideration. I don't know if he's there right now, uh, but this next month of games, these four weeks that remain here uh, in the regular season are going to tell a big, big story about his future with the Seahawks organization. Curtis Rogers, Seattle Sports, 710 ESPN Seattle, joining us on the BFT. Nubian for Gonzano, Seahawks, Niners, Thursday night football coming up tonight, 515 right here uh, on the game. Uh, Russell Wilson, Denver Broncos. Curtis, what a bizarre year. What a bizarre few months it's been uh, since the trade was announced uh, back in the, the late spring. What have you made of it all? And I know you've got unique background, uh, used to having worked with Jake Heaps at uh, Seattle Sports, and Jake, of course, decided to make the move to be Russell's personal quarterback coach in Denver. Uh, from your vantage point, what's been going on there, and uh, what kind of perspective um, you know, can you enlighten us with, <laughs> given your background with Jake and just everything that you know as a Seahawk fan uh, going back a ways with Russell Wilson? Yeah, I, I think we're all just stunned to see the fall of Russell Wilson's production. Uh, I think we're also stunned to see this Broncos team that looked like they were just a quarterback away from contending in the AFC West. Uh, now they are hitting the reset button in a big way. They've already traded Bradley Chubb just to recoup a first-round pick. Uh, I don't think it's likely at all that Nathaniel Hackett returns next season. I think he's one and done. <laughs> I think that's a pretty safe assumption. Um, but, yeah, I, I think with Russell Wilson right now, uh, his mobility just seems to be completely shot. And that was such a big part of his game. That's how he was able to keep plays alive for so long here in Seattle. Uh, that's how he was able to, you know, find guys out on the move, move in the pocket, keeping defenses uncomfortable. He doesn't have that aspect of his game right now. Um, but also I think – Part of it has to do with guys in that Denver locker room just needing to know how to win, needing to know how to learn or needing to learn how to win. They've lost so many close games this year. They've lost so many fourth quarter leads this year. Uh, winning is, is a learned thing. It's not really something that is, is second nature to a lot of guys in the NFL. And if your roster is full of guys that haven't made the playoffs in so many years, I think it's been, what, six years since the Broncos have last made the playoffs. Uh, there's a losing culture that, that can take over, and, and not one guy can really change all that. Also, I, I don't think Russell Wilson is a great fit with Nathaniel Hackett. I think Nathaniel Hackett was brought in to entice Aaron Rodgers to come to Denver, and that w never happened. Rodgers stayed in Green Bay, so the Broncos had to settle for option number two, and Russell Wilson 
it feels like they're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, and it's not working. And, look, the, the Broncos have made a much heavier financial commitment to Russell Wilson than they have with Nathaniel Hackett. You've got a new ownership group there in the Walton family. Uh, they've obviously got deep pocketbooks. So I don't think they're going to hesitate to make a change at head coach at the end of this season. Um, I, I wonder, though, who's going to want to take this job because, you know, with Russell Wilson clearly not the same quarterback that he was in Seattle, uh, who is going to be able to maximize his skill set? He's got such a unique skill set as it is. Uh, you know, he wasn't able to have, you know, a, a, an explosive offense here with Shane Waldron, whereas Geno Smith, who is a different kind of quarterback, seems to be getting more out of the Seahawks offense than Russell Wilson did in his final season in Seattle. So, I mean, it obviously it's one of 32 jobs. It, you know, anytime an NFL head coaching job comes up, it's highly sought after. But, boy, you've got to be really confident in yourself as a coach, in your game plan, in order to get the most out of what this Broncos team uh, could possibly be. But right now it, just, it is not working in Denver. Uh, and I think Nathaniel Hackett is going to be the guy that – uh, that, that sees his time there end before Russell Wilson. Were you surprised at all at the uh, amount of stories or maybe the attention to the stories that, that came out throughout the year about Russell's former teammates uh, not exactly jiving with his personality or uh, his leader, le- leadership style at times? You'd always heard whispers. There were guys who would say things kind of in passing about Russell Wilson, and it was like, really? But what do you mean by that? And they'd be like, oh, well, you know, it's no, it's nothing. And then all of a sudden you start to see, especially in that week one matchup, uh, when a, a huge number of guys from the Legion of Boom era were in the stands and were just, you know, having a heyday on social media watching the Seahawks beat the Broncos the way they did. Um, and, and now, you know, Richard Sherman is all over the place basically telling you, I told you so, I told you so. Like, this is not a guy who you build a franchise around. Um, it, it, it's interesting because that Legion of Boom era team, they were so competitive, so hyper-competitive with each other. And I think they looked at how they were always having to battle for their spots, whereas Russell Wilson, after he won the job in 2012, was basically you know, assumed to be the starter. They never brought in anybody to push him. And, and they kind of felt like they, that Russell Wilson was being treated differently than the rest of the locker room, um, which, I mean, look, quarterbacks are always treated differently no matter where you're at uh, in the NFL. And, and maybe that was a harsh reality that some guys hadn't come to at that time. But, uh, you know, look, there was a lot of questioning of whether Pete Carroll and John Schneider were the right guys for this job. Uh, going forward after the 2021 season, which ended with a 7-10 and record. Um, as we know, they picked Pete and John instead of Russ to go forward with, and that has turned out to be the absolute right decision for this organization. Um, but I, I think those of us on the outside were kind of struck by the strong reaction of those guys, but now it's kind of like, oh, maybe maybe they were onto something and we should have maybe been listening a little bit closer <laughs> over the last few years because they seem to know uh, a little bit more, or at least have their finger on the pulse of what's going on in that locker room. And uh, I can tell you this, it, they're you know, just inside that building in the Seahawks organization. Uh, there's no step, there's no walking on eggshells anymore. It, it feels like everybody's just kind of glad to have that era maybe in the rear view. They're able to, focus now on on the future of this organization 
rather than kind of holding on to the past of what that era was. Yeah, between the early returns on the Russ trade and the early returns on this past draft class, Pete and John got me back, Curtis. <laughs> this draft class looks phenomenal uh, that they were able to pluck in uh, in 2022. As we uh, as we look at tonight's game, then um, this Brock Purdy guy, the uh, the media hyping him up a little too much, Curtis. I mean, he won a lot of ball games at Iowa State. <laughs> I will give him credit for that. He, him and Matt Campbell and Brees Hall, they they had something good going over in Ames, Iowa. Uh, so shout out to them <laughs> over there. But uh, you know, I think he's been going along here with the training wheels a little bit the last couple of games. This is his first road start in the NFL, uh, and, and it's coming in one of the most daunting environments in the league. I can guarantee you Lumen Field is going to be an absolute madhouse tonight. I don't know if Purdy has ever played in an environment like this. I don't know what uh, what it's like in Lubbock, Texas. I don't know what it's like in Norman, Oklahoma, or in Stillwater, or something like that uh, over in the Big 12, but it, it's definitely not uh, as cushy of an environment as it is playing a home game at Levi Stadium. Uh, you know, I will give him credit though, beating two pretty good teams, or at least coming in relief against Miami, uh, helping the 49ers get that victory, and then obviously going toe to toe last week with Tom Brady and the Bucks. Uh, I just think the Bucks are kind of broken right now. I just I don't see them uh, being much of a threat in the NFC now. Uh, it, it's foolish of anybody to pick against Tom Brady for sure, but I, I just don't see it from them this season. I think Brock Purdy is a guy that can sustain. I don't know if he's a guy that can elevate and make this 49ers team better, and he's going to have to do it tonight without one of his biggest weapons, Debo Samuel, uh, which is a great thing to have if you're a a rookie quarterback, somebody making your first couple appearances in the NFL. Now, he still has Christian McCaffrey. He still has George Kittle. He still has Brandon Ayuk. But Debo Samuel is the guy that you have to account for on every single play, no matter what's going on offensively for the 49ers. I expect them to run a lot tonight. I expect them to challenge the Seahawks' rush defense, which has been porous, uh, to say it nicely. (laughs) And I think Christian McCaffrey is going to be somebody that's going to get the ball a lot. He's going to get a lot of handoffs from Brock Purdy. Uh, They're going to try and limit the um, opportunities for the Seahawks' defense. An opportunistic defense, despite the amount of yards they've given up, they've been able to generate a lot of turnovers this season. So I think we're going to see – Christian McCaffrey took that rock a lot tonight. Man, I, I'm trying to, uh, you know, tell myself I'm not being naive here, Curtis, because you're right about the rush defense woes of Seattle and the rushing potency of San Francisco's offense. Uh, that alone, you know, the, the 49ers are favored, and rightfully so. It is a three-point spread, but I'm telling myself that there's more ways to win a game than just uh, just running the football, right, and uh, and stopping the run. I'm trying to convince myself that there's a little magic left in this Seahawk team on a magical primetime night, right? Pete Carroll teams are made for primetime games. They're made for primetime games at home. They're made for when their backs are against the wall. This is how I'm talking myself into this game. Do you do you feel uh, <laughs> do you feel like it's a similar opportunity for the Seahawks tonight? And can they get it done? It's a, it, it, they absolutely have a shot tonight. I don't think there's anybody counting them out going into this game despite how uh, they've looked against the run and despite how they've looked against teams that they should have beaten. You know, they've lost to the Panthers. They've lost to the Raiders. They're 0-4 against the NFC South, which is the worst division in football. Uh, but yet, 
outside of those four games, they're what seven and two against the rest of the league. They've won their only loss in the division this year came against the 49ers. So uh, I think there is a big opportunity here for them tonight. Um, and as we know, Pete Carroll has had a lot of success going up against Kyle Shanahan in his career. Uh, for whatever reason, Pete has been able to outcoach him quite a number of times. Now, back in week two, it was all 49ers. That game wasn't even close. The only score the Seahawks got in that game was on a return block kick. So you're probably going to see a little more offense from the Seahawks tonight against the 49ers. But, man, that 49ers defense, uh, they are really, really good. Yeah. Uh, they have not given up a lot of points this year. I think outside of, what was it, that Chiefs game, the most they've given up this season is 28. Uh, and they've that I think it was just one time, too. So, uh, uh this 49ers team, really, really good. But I think the Seahawks do have a fighting chance tonight. Um, and it, it's all going to be – it's all going to come down to their offense being able to hang with San Francisco. I think San Francisco is still going to be able to put up points on Seattle. Um, can Geno Smith not turn the ball over? Can Kenneth Walker get things going on the ground? Get the ball to DK, get the ball to Tyler Lockett, and get this offense going. Um, they've been able to score over the last few weeks. That has not been an issue for them. It's keeping teams off the board. Uh, so, you know, you got to kind of play to your strengths there. And the Seahawks right now, their biggest strength has been able to put points on the board. Yeah, they're going to have to do that again tonight. Hair is starting to stand up on the back of the neck a little bit as we get closer, Curtis. Uh, I, had, I had similar vibes in week one. As kickoff got close, I was like, oh, man, here we go. Here we go. Like like the Super Bowl's about to start, and now I'm getting similar vibes as uh, we approach kickoff for tonight. Uh, hey, thanks so much for laying it out for us, for giving some Seattle flavor uh, to the Portland show and, and the Oregon people tonight. We appreciate it, and uh, have fun in your professional roles this evening, and uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you again soon, Curtis. Thanks for the time. Judah, anytime. Oh, I'm so excited for this one. I hope everybody down in Portland is too. Uh, really looking forward to covering this game, and uh, always a pleasure joining you. There he is, Curtis Rogers on Twitter at a kid from Kent, Seattle, catching three tonight at home against San Francisco. We'll bounce a break, come back, talk about that a little bit more, and continue to talk Beavs Gators coming up Saturday, 503-417-7575. Newbie in for Canzano on the BFT. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up at 515 here in the Portland area, we'll have Westwood One's coverage of Seattle, San Francisco. Let's go. Let's go. I'm getting fired up now, man. It's good stuff. You know, my dad grew up a 49er fan. Uh, my brother was a 49er fan, and he would not let me in on the 49er fandom that he had with my dad. He said, no, little bro, you've got to pick yourself your own team. So I gravitated to the next closest NFL uh, franchise, the one that was on TV all the time, and that was the Seattle Seahawks and Rick Meyer. Rick Meyer was my first QB, uh, <laughs> for better or for worse, and often it was for worse as a Seahawk fan. But nights like tonight are special. Lumen Field's going to be awesome. It's going to be a great atmosphere. Al and Kirk get a good game. I'm already seeing some of the photos, Richard Sherman and uh, Fitzpatrick and all the Amazon Prime people. 
uh, on the scene ready to broadcast this game. It should be good. Now, obviously, from a matchup standpoint, I am concerned. I am concerned that Seattle is a sieve in the rushing defense department. And their best run stopper, Al Woods, is inactive. He got hurt in the Carolina game early. Carolina ran all over Seattle. And uh, that was one of the big reasons Seattle lost that game. As like a uh, three-and-a-half point favorite at home. Al Woods not playing tonight. And lo and behold, you got uh, not the Panthers, Christian McCaffrey's former team, but you got Christian McCaffrey's current team, the 49ers, with an even better rushing attack coming at you. The only thing in Seattle's favor are no Debo Samuel, and it's Brock Purdy's first true road start. Will that matter? We've been hyping uh, praise on Brock Purdy for how he's handled the last uh, seven quarters of football since coming in for Jimmy Garoppolo in the Miami game and performing quite well in the Tampa Bay game. And it doesn't really look like the offense has missed a beat with with Brock Purdy, the Mr. Irrelevant, the final pick in the draft. And, of course, Duck fans remember him from Iowa State in the Fiesta Bowl. But this has to matter. His first true road start in the NFL has to matter from a standpoint of this atmosphere at Lumen Field is, needs to rattle him a little bit. And we'll find out some things about Brock Purdy tonight, I'm sure. But he does have the advantage of having a fantastic run game with a really solid offensive line led by one of the better left tackles the game has seen in Trent Williams. So we'll see what Kyle's got dialed up. Historically, Pete's had Kyle's number. I don't know really how that's happened over the years, but it's been the case. Week two notwithstanding, when Seattle lost uh, a lot to a little Trey Lance got hurt. Jimmy played. 27-7 speaks for itself. But these rivalry games have brought out some magical moments uh, out of the Seahawks in the past, both in Santa Clara but also in Seattle in particular. You can give me December primetime game in a gotta-have-it situation with your, the Seahawks and the Niners tangling. You cannot rule the Seahawks out. Obviously, the 49ers are better, but you cannot rule the Seahawks out. I mean, there's just those matchups where, you know, one coach or one team has has the upper hand over the other one. I mean, in the NFL, there's a lot of those, you know, Jaguars over the Colts. Like, the Colts are always better than the Jags, but the Jags beat them. Like, there, there's a chance. Your, your Jaguars. My Jaguars. And your, <laughs> you, you want to you jump on the bandwagon? No, it's cool. All right. It's cool. It's, it's fun. It's a fun bandwagon. I do no. like Trevor, but uh, no, nah, it's cool. It's a fun wagon rider. But no, this Seahawks game, and especially at home, I think if the game, if the, it would be so different if this game was down in San Francisco on a Thursday night. I don't know if the Seahawks have a chance, but the fact that it's going to be in Seattle, um, you know, you heard the last guest, like, he's talking about how it's just such an exciting time up there, and it's almost a must-win. I asked you this yesterday, like, do the Seahawks need to win this game to make the playoffs? It, it's not a yes, but it's a, they better win, right? Like, it's I, I think right, it is a yes, frankly. It, yeah, it, it, I, it, I'm it, ready to ride or die with, with tonight's result, because you're not be, in my opinion, if Patrick Mahomes is playing, you're not beating the Chiefs next week. And if you are telling me that you have lost three in a row going into the last two games of the season, where would that put you? Seven and eight, right? Yeah. And the best you could do is nine and eight if you beat the Jets and beat the Rams. Like I don't think I don't think nine and eight gets you in. And frankly, that's because the freaking commandos and giants tied. Those jerks. That tie could stupid. Yeah. It's like they're both ahead of Seattle right now because of that stupid tie. And they play on uh on they play on Sunday night football. But um, maybe they tie again. Who who the heck yeah. knows with those two teams? I am convincing myself, and I think it's fair. I think tonight is a must win 
for for playoff hopes. Not that I mean, you tell me. Can they get in at nine and eight based on the way everything else is shaping out, the way Detroit's playing and coming up on their heels and the way Commandos and Giants are playing, you know, I I can't assume that nine and eight's going to get you in if you lose the next two games. Yeah, I think you'd be more worried about the Lions than you would like the Giants. I think the Giants are really falling off. The Lions at six and seven, I think they're the most dangerous team. Like if they make the playoffs, like that's a team that you don't really want to play. That's yeah. one of those type of teams. But uh, you know, so on the field wise, Judy, you know, you say you have you think Seattle has a chance. I do too. I like Seattle in the game. What is it going to take to get a Seattle win? Because we know that forty nine defense is going to be great, but what did the Seahawks have to do to actually move the ball and then stop the 49ers on the other side? Can they do that? I think the Niners are going to move the ball between the 20s pretty easily uh, because of the run game. That being said, you know, I what, they get the ball 10, 11 times. First of all, you try to limit possessions as best you can. The way you do that is, you know, Move the sticks when you got it. <laughs> Have a good ground game when you got it on offense and then not turn the ball over. It's so, you know, cliche, but I do feel like when there's intense games like this, it's it comes down to turnovers and red zone conversions. When you get to the, I'd even extend that to the 25-yard line if you're Seattle. If you get to the high red area, are you putting it in, in the end zone? And are you taking care of the football and not turning it over? Like, And that's where I think Seattle... I, mean, I don't think it's likely that they force multiple turnovers, but they can. And, you know, this is Brock's first true road game. You're telling me that there's a chance that maybe he doesn't uh, mess something up in terms of the snap count or the cadence or he misses a misses a protection. Maybe Seattle's got some kind of blitz package ready for him that he hasn't seen. Like, that has to show up at some point in this game. Brock Purdy's inexperience has to show up at some point in this game. And if I'm a Seahawks fan, which obviously I am, I'm convincing myself that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think for me, Judah, it's going to come down to Geno Smith. This is a big Geno game. It's a massive Geno game. I think Gino, you, you he see could the... make so much money off of this game if he per, if he performs really well. Think about that. Seahawks are probably going to make the playoffs. It's against the best defense in the league, and you have the better quarterback on your team, Judah. Like the Seahawks have the better quarterback. He needs to show out in this game, and if he does, like this is a game where he can make a lot of money, man. Look, he uh, he got a little hot and cold the last couple weeks. He had some moments in the Rams game that were like, eh. He had some moments in the Panthers game. You're like, ugh. You know, he had the the pick right out of the gate. You know, first play from scrimmage. You're throwing it right at J.C. Horn. What are we doing, Gino? You know what I mean? Yeah, you need you need a good Gino game. And we need it. We need the best Gino game. And, uh, and frankly, golly, man, the the tackles Seattle has at left tackle and right tackle. You got Charles Cross. Who I don't, you know, I didn't ask Curtis about this, but Charles Cross is dealing with a lot. You know, that's that's a Mike Leach guy right there, and Charles Cross out of Mississippi State uh, at left tackle. He's been great. Abraham Lucas has been great out of Wazoo. My goodness, another Mike Leach connection uh, at right tackle for the Seahawks. Nick Bosa is on another level. Like this guy's a freaking terror. Yeah. So they've got to figure out a way to limit one-on-one reps for Bosa against anybody. But the Niners, it's sheer chaos on that D line. They got a bunch of ass kickers, and yeah. they're they're coming at you. And from I'm a Seahawks fan, obviously, but from an objective standpoint, 
hard not to love that defense when you watch it on tape. They fly. And that's why I'm saying I think it's a Geno game because Kenneth Walker going to play. I think you know what you're going to get out of the Seahawks run game. Can Geno make a few throws down the field and you know look like first half of the season Geno? I think it'll be huge. Whew, it's going to be huge. I'm getting pumped now. I'm getting pumped now. 503-417-7575. If you're a Niner fan, hit me up. Talk smack. I'm here for it. I'm here, I'm here all day for it. Let's do this. I grew up with Niner fans in the house. I can do this. Uh, if you're a Seahawks fan, though, you're more than welcome. 503-417-7575. Give me your take on this game. Give me your pick on this game. Let's talk it out as uh, 515 nears for kickoff right here on uh, the BFT flagship 750, the game. We'll bounce the break and come back. Newbie in for Kenzano on the Bald Face Truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Kenzano on 750, the game. New being for Catano on the BFT as we hurdle closer to 515. Thanks to Curtis Rogers, Seattle Sports, joining us earlier on the show. Thanks to Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers, joining us earlier in the show. A couple of uh, special guests, special uh, good friends of mine, so uh, love having that. Peter Sampson will fill in uh, for John Catano tomorrow on the BFT, 3 to 6 p.m. as well. Seahawks Niners, it's a great, great rivalry in the National Football League. Uh, when these two teams are humming and when they are good. Now, when I, you know, think of Seahawks Niners, I uh, that was my first NFL game. Actually, I attended was the 2005 season. I think it was December 11th, something like that. And Seattle uh, just just crushed San Francisco, just annihilated them, 41 to three. I remember that. I remember being there. I remember my uncle John. Shout out Uncle John. He's always looked out for me. My uncle John hooked uh, hooked us up with tickets, and me, my dad, uh, a friend from school, and my brother went. And uh, Joe Nedney hit like a 56-yard field goal for the Niners on the first drive of the game, and then the Niners didn't score a single point after that, and the good guys scored 41 unanswered. We went to the Super Bowl that year. You know, we had the one seed in the NFC, uh, won a divisional playoff game at home over Washington, Won the NFC Championship over the Carolina Panthers and Jake DeLome and Steve Smith, who was amazing in 2005, if you remember. Surprised to no one. But uh, Carolina, I remember, was without Stephen Davis and uh, Deshaun Foster got hurt. And they had to go to their third and fourth string running backs because their third string running back, Nick Goings, got a concussion in the NFC Championship. So look, it was it was destiny for the Seahawks that year to get to the Super Bowl uh, they did, and obviously, um, who knew that they had to play, you know, two opponents on the same field. I mean, <laughs> it's really tough. It's really tough to beat two opponents at the same time when uh, you got Bill Levy literally wearing black and yellow. I mean, I can't believe, you know, I, I still can't believe Bill Levy was was on the Steelers' payroll that day. Um, can't, you know, I'll never come to terms with that. But that being said, 2005 was special. That was my first NFL game. That was my first Seahawk Niner exposure. Um you know, uh, to it, you got Dennis Erickson connections. Oddly enough, he coached both teams at various points of his remarkable football life. Has Have they done a football life on Dennis Erickson? They need to do that. That needs to happen. That would be an underrated one. Like he, that, guy's, <laughs> that guy's been in a lot of things. I love John Kinzato's story when 
John is fresh on the scene in in Oregon, like O two or whatever. And like one of the first stories he does, it's like hmm, Dennis Erickson. He's coach of the Beavers at the time, and he's like, oh, I'm hearing Dennis Erickson's going to take the Niner job. And then Erickson calls him into his office, and he's like, John, what the heck? Like I'm not taking that job. Like there's no way. Like if you've got a story, you can come to me first. And the next day. Dennis Erickson takes the Niner job and totally, you know, throws it in uh, throws it in everybody's face. And I'm like, dude, you know, we don't know these guys, but John knew something. And uh, he had, John's got a story out of the Bay Area. It's well-sourced. All right. <laughs> if the dude's rooted anywhere, it's out of the Bay Area. So uh, it's, uh, it's a great story. But, uh, yeah, Dennis Erickson, Seahawk teams back in the day. Uh, man, th- those were my first Seahawk teams. But then Seahawk Niners went to a next level with Jim Harbaugh and Pete Carroll and Colin Kaepernick and um, Frank Gore was a freaking beast. God. Michael Crabtree. Crabtree, you know. You-, you can't come in there with a sorry receiver like Crabtree. That's the result you're going to get. L-O-B. Uh, you said it with a little bit more volume, but I'm not sure if I've got the Sherman pipes right now. Uh, speaking of Sherm, so he's doing the Amazon Prime broadcast uh, pre and post and everything, and they, they had a video. The Seahawks tweeted out a video a moment ago of Sherm talking with Tariq Wolin, the rookie out of UTSA, and Tariq's like 6'4", you know, runs a 4'2'9". <laughs> ridiculous athlete, and he's played so so good ball. Fifth-round pick, and, uh, and he's dapping it up with Sherm, who is also a fifth-round pick out of Stanford, so... That was cool. And then they come together, you know, they dap it up and they come apart. And then Tariq has to go and dap it up with him one more time. He brings it in for the real thing. And that pulls the heartstrings as a Seahawk fan to see that love from Sherm with Tariq Woolen. And they just spent some time just hugging it out. And uh, Sherm just telling Tariq, dude, you freaking did it, man. Like, you, you're going to be a pro bowler. You're one of the best corners in the league. And you're just a rook. Congrats. Proud of you. And just to see that pride that Sherm still has. Because, man, when he's when he signed for the with the 49ers, I'll, I'll remember where I was. I was uh, at working an event at a winery when I got the breaking news that Sherm was signing with the Niners. I was like, you got to be effing kidding me right now. And maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but that hurt. That, as a Seahawks fan, that hurt at the time. So to see it kind of come back full circle and, and see Sherm... Give some love for Seattle. Give some love for Pete, especially in the post-Russ era. And give some love for the up-and-coming defensive stars like Tariq Wollin. That matters, and it's meaningful, and it's really, really cool. Hopefully that magic parlays into a little money line. Huh? A little money line for the Hawks tonight. We'll see. All right, we'll bounce the break and come back and uh, get to ever closer to joining Westwood One's coverage of Seahawks Niners here on uh, 750 The Game of the BFT Radio Network. Newbie in for Kanzano on the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Quarterback position at Oregon and Oregon State. Something to keep an eye on. Aiden Childs, four-star recruit. Uh, he's uh, Oregon State commit. Of course, you got early signing day next Wednesday. Is he the future at the QB position for the Beavs, or is Transfer Portal the future? I've heard good things about Transfer Portal. He's a pretty good player. Uh, we'll find out. As for the Ducks, is it Bosif coming back? Is it Dante Moore? Is Moore going to UCLA? Is he going to flip? A lot of drama. A lot of drama, depending on who you hear. 
coming up after the break, we'll do the five at five. And as part of the five at five, we will uh, play some audio from the aforementioned Richard Sherman, who was on uh, Seattle Sports this morning. Uh, the Mike Salk, Brock Heward show. That that uh, that fine program up there. A fine program uh, up there uh, at Seattle Sports. Sharm was on that show, and we were just talking about Sherm in the previous segment and how hurt, how much it hurt for me as a fan when he signed with the 49ers. Um, but Sherm had some clapbacking to do uh, at Mike Salk, I think. Right? Is that right, Stephen? Yeah, he uh, had a problem with something he said, but he wouldn't say exactly what he said. So, oh, okay. Uh, that there... sounds like Sherm, by the yeah, way. Yeah. It's, it's he... like, dude, I remember what you said, man, or what I say. He's like, but I, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, Sherm. <laughs> he basically wants to shut him out. That's it. it. He basically wants to shut him out. Pretty uh, funny. I think it's pretty funny. We'll play that as part of our 5 at 5 uh, coming up in the final hour. If you miss the conversations with Curtis Rogers of Seattle Sports, with Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers, uh, you can find those uh, on the podcast as soon as it's up on the BFT podcast and the uh, 750thegame.com. All right, when we come back, final segment of the show leading up into Thursday night football between the Seahawks and the 49ers. I think it's a must win for Seattle if they want to make the playoffs, but we'll see. It spreads at three, three and a half. We'll find out. Final thoughts coming up next on the BFT. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, in for John Canzano, here's Jude and Newby with the bald-faced truth. You know, football sense tells you the 49ers win tonight, but I've never cared for football sense. Seahawks 22, Niners 21. That's my prediction. Where's the total at? It's right around like 43. Oh, perfect. Perfect, yeah. (laughs) I think it's going to be messy. I think it's going to get weird. Uh, Some a safety, maybe. How about a fumble through the back of the end zone? I could see that. 42 and a half. It went down. So, Mm. get your over right now. Dude, I suck at Thursday night. You know this. I've not bet Thursday night since Bears Commandos. Bears Commandos has haunted us. All season long. Freaking commandos. I tell you what, I'm in on the Seahawks. I got Seahawks really? at three and a half. Got Seahawks on the money line. I got with everything, yeah. Okay, what's your, uh, is it? Is it just the magic of the moment? Prime time, built for this? I think it's a little bit of all that. I think Brock Purdy, first road game, I think that's going to be a problem for him. I, I don't expect him to do much. I, I you know, We talked about this too. Geno Smith, kind of a money game for him. I think Geno's going to show up. I think Geno's going to have some nice throws. Uh, Seahawks know they have. They can't really run the ball great, so they're going to spread it out, get it to DK, get it to Lockett. I think Dino's going to have a nice game. Got to take care of the football. All I ever wanted for Christmas was to take care of the football, honestly. That's all I ever wanted. Let's do the five at five. The five at five. I teased it before the break, but Sherm of Seahawk and Niner fame. Sherm was on with the crew at 710 uh, ESPN Seattle, Seattle Sports Station, and uh, he had a little beef with one of the hosts in Mike Salk. Uh, let's hear some of that. You know the voice, Richard Sherman, uh, with us here on Seattle Sports on 710. When you went elsewhere, first to San Francisco and then Tampa, what did it teach you or what did you learn about the differences between those places and what you had seen here in Seattle? Well, well, first off, first off, I remember when I exited here, and, and I remember some, some words from you. Yeah. Um, 
that were that were a lot different than than I had heard when I was here. So you know what I mean? It's, it's a little different. I'm gonna answer the questions from Brock and KJ, but we're gonna excuse you out of this. <laughs> Well, okay. so, first of all, that's just not true. I mean, like, the words you heard from me were actually pretty similar to what you had heard while you were here. You just maybe didn't hear it. Yeah, because I don't listen to the show. But no, again, I don't, that's fine. I'm not asking you to listen. But the words didn't change. I didn't say anything different when you left I from when you were here. excused from the interview. All right. Well, sorry. For, for, well, for, for, don't really work that way, Sherm. This for, is, you know, a show that has my name on it. It kind of does. It kind of does, though. No, not but, really how this works, man. But, sorry, for your, for your dog. For your dog. For your dog. When, let, let, that's, that's, that's the only reason I'm here, because of KJ. Well, like, I, I appreciate I, the, the that, think, but... The I, man thinks he gets... It, like, if you've got an issue, you can feel free to talk about it. Of KJ, not because of you. Well, so, I, I understand that. Yeah. If you've got an issue, I'm happy to talk through those with you, man. If you've got a uh, problem, yeah, something you want to talk about. That sounds uh, that sounds like Sherm for sure. A little sure. salty, man. A little salty. Oh, I love that though. I mean, it, it makes for uh, a compelling listen. I think Mike did a good job standing his ground. I mean, he probably did say the the same things when he was in Seattle. But uh, Sherm can pick his battles, and uh, his friendship with KJ probably got him on the show in the first place anyway. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, these professional athletes at this level, man. I mean, bitterness is real. You know, motivation is more intense at that level than it is anywhere else. Uh, I do not doubt for one moment that Sherm was harboring a little bit of resentment toward toward Mike. And, hey, that means that at one point he was listening to the show. So I don't know what he's saying when he, I don't listen to your show. But I remember when you said this. Well, that means that you were listening, Sherm. So Sherm doesn't make sense all the time, but uh, he's still fun. And uh, he's still, you know, he's, he's a great personality. I think he's doing a good job with Amazon as well. All right, number two in our five at five. I saw this story this afternoon. The National Labor Board, the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, is directing its regional office in Los Angeles to pursue charges of unfair labor practices against USC, the Pac-12 Conference, and the NCAA. The National Labor Relations Board is going to argue that athletes at USC are employees of USC. They're employees of the Pac-12. They're employees of the NCAA, and their rights have been unlawfully restricted. If they're successful, that means the athletes will be able to unionize. And you'll basically get a players union of college athletes at, at USC, and of course the domino effects would be elsewhere. So we've been talking so much about Pac-12, you know, expansion, media rights, USC, UCLA leaving. And how does that going to factor into all this? I mean, USC is not even going to be part of the Pac-12 in a year. So why are you, you know, trying to uh, to, to formalize a lawsuit against the, the, uh, the Pac-12? And I don't even think it's an actual lawsuit, is it? I mean, it's because it's only a, it's an activation group that's trying to bring this uh, to the forefront. So, I don't know. It gets so messy. But basically, it might give the opportunity for USC athletes to unionize if they win. And do college athletes need a players union? The way this is all trending, capitalization, free agency, NIL, portal. I mean, if you want that world, then you might as well have a players association. Like, that's the natural next step with all of this stuff. Representation on the up and up, right? Representation with uh, with agents and you know protective services to make sure things and working conditions are up to your liking i mean 
it's basically pro sports anyway. They're just saying, if it's going to be real pro sports, let's get these guys some protection in the vein of a, uh, in the vein of a, you know, the National Labor Board saying they're employees. Let's get these guys unionized, just like they do in the NFL, just like they do in the NBA, MLB. The NCAA should have a players' union as well. So that's on the table uh, as well. Number three in our five at five, Damian Lillard. Went for, how many did he go for last night, Steven? 37? 37. Man, he's rolling right now. He's staying fresh. He's staying healthy. Blazers put up 73 first half points, and they beat San Antonio 128-112. Three in a row for the Blazers, and tomorrow they go to Dallas to take on Luka. This uh, road trip off to a nice start, Steven. Can they keep it going? Yeah, no doubt. You know, six-game road trip. They did one earlier this year. They went 4-2. and two. And the teams they played were much tougher. This is a much easier six-game road stretch. I think the Blazers are going to be fine. Like I said yesterday, Judah, number one in offense the last two weeks for the Trailblazers. That offense is rolling. Thanks a lot to Damian Lillard. He has been he has been unbelievable the last few games. Speaking of offense in the Western Conference, Stephen Curry. This is number four. He's expected to miss a few weeks with a left shoulder injury. Uh, Steve, I saw that he was on fire in the first half last night, but the Warriors were down big, and now he's got a shoulder injury to boot. Not good for a team that's still looking to find its rhythm. Yeah, reevaluated in two weeks. Blazers play down in Golden State 15 days from now. So, uh, so you know, maybe great timing where Steph doesn't play against the Blazers. That would be uh, it'll be good for Portland. That but hopefully he gets back good. healthy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, and the last of our five at five. Uh, looks like the NCAA has its replacement for Mark Emmer at long last, and it's not a athletic director. It's not a president of a school. It is a politician, as uh, Peter Courtney would say. I'm a politician. <laughs> Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker is going to be the uh, the one to succeed Mark Emmer. Boy, dude, the bar is so low for the NCAA. Such a low bar. I mean, Charlie Baker can basically just breathe once he's in the chair and be better than Mark Emmert was. What so. was the lower bar? Larry Scott in the Pac-12 oh, or Mark Emmert in the whole NCAA? Man, hard to limbo under those bars, both of those bars. Larry Scott left it low. Left it like flow rider low. Low, 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 low. Like Fred Meyer low, 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 dude. That's how low that dude That Fred Meyer low is low. That's a low Kroger low. That is a Kroger low right there. <laughs> uh, I'll say Larry. I'll say Larry. Larry was tough. Damn. Uh, Thursday night football coming up in a few minutes. Seahawks money line. What kind of value are you getting on the money line? It was only like one sixty. wasn't much, but come on, it's a winner. Kenneth Walker going to play. Hopefully, the Seahawks defense does just enough. I think it comes down to the wire. I got Seahawks twenty two twenty one. It's a heart pick. But, hey, man, this is what it's all about. If I'm not picking with my heart, what am I doing at this time? Show me the money. Let's go, Seahawks. Thursday Night Football is up next. Samson's in tomorrow on the BFT.